Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Bubble Trouble, conversations between the economist and author Will Page and myself, independent analyst Richard Kramer where we lay out some inconvenient truths about how financial markets really work. Today, we wrestle with ethics and technology. Stephanie Hare's wonderful new book, Technology is Not Neutral, gives us a much-needed framework for thinking about how the technologies we interact with every day affect our moral lives. More in a moment. So welcome to the podcast, Stephanie. We always like to begin by tossing the microphone to you to introduce yourself, your current work, and where the audience can find you, and also their accent. So in that order, take it away. (laughs) Hello, my name is Stephanie Hare, and I'm an independent researcher and broadcaster and now author of a new book on technology ethics. You can most easily find me on Twitter. My handle is at Hare, H-A-R-E underscore brain so at hairbrain and my accent is a combination of just outside chicago via paris long time london so my vowels are a mess <laughs> okay so the book is called technology is not neutral and a short guide to technology and ethics and a title with the word technology and ethics isn't exactly clickbait so Rather than talk to us, talk to our audience for a second. How do we get this message across without crossing over? Imagine you landed on Mars and you worked out this technology, the state and the society. How do you explain the word ethics to these three different groups? I think technology ethics is totally clickbait, which just shows you I need to get out more if I, I've been <laughs> locked in my house for years. Preach waiting, to the so. unconverted. Yeah. No, but I think right now, I mean, we're currently living, mm. I think, in a very ethical moment yes. where... With the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you're having countries and Mm. companies all having to take sides, take a call, make decisions. It's not good enough to just say it's complicated. You have to decide, are you staying in or are you pulling your people out? Or what are you doing with your assets and infrastructure? What's your social media policy on allowing violence or political expression, censorship? How are you trying to support people in Russia who perhaps disagree with this invasion? So you don't Mm -hmm. want to punish the Russian people, you want to punish Putin. Those are all, those sound like political questions, but politics is the expression of power. Ethics, which is about our values, is what we feel and think is good or bad. What is the right way to be, the wrong way to be? And of course, there's as many opinions about that as there are people on the planet, including all those who came before us, whose works we get to consult and cite and often misquote on the internet. So I think this is going to be a massive moment 
And we're seeing it for investors as well with the rise of ESG investing, so environmental, social 100%. governance. We're seeing it with younger people who are really wanting the values of their lives to also be shared and aligned with those of their employers. So they want their employers to take a stand. They want to know what their employers think. And of course, that's is really messy, particularly if you're a multinational and you're involved in all sorts of markets or sometimes very different value sets. Hmm. And you're like, I'm just here to sell a soft drink. <laughs> Why do so, I need to take a position on that? Where's the demand for you to take a position coming from? Did we have a dress rehearsal of that in the past few years with the Me Too and Black Lives Matter movements where, again, every company was forced to make statements and to pledge their ethics in public? Now, many of those companies, as we know, didn't live up to those ethics, and it's certainly not confined to technology. But that was kind of a dress rehearsal for what we're seeing now in the Russia-Ukraine situation, do you think? Yeah, so certainly, I think particularly in the United States, those two examples were really uh, salient. But I'm also thinking even back a little bit earlier to the Arab uprisings. So you saw a lot of technology companies, but also telecommunications companies. I remember Google took a really big stand on what was happening in Egypt and Cairo to Rio Square. And France Telecom got really criticized for not taking a similar, we're leaving, we're pulling out. And of course, it's easier for Google to pull out than it was France Telecom, which had physical infrastructure and staff in much greater numbers in the country than it was for Google, for whom Egypt was a smaller part of its market and fewer, fewer people, etc. So it's that whole thing of, it all just depends on, it could be whether or not you have a supply chain issue because you're a fast-moving consumer good and you're looking to make sure that there is not slave labor or child labor in your market. Or if you make superconducting chips or semiconducting chips, rather, you're looking at the rare earths minerals issue in the environment much more because you have to get those earths either from the Democratic Republic of Congo or China. And China obviously is a massive issue, not just because of the repression of the Uyghur Muslims, a million of whom are currently mm -hmm. locked up in a camp, but it's also the US-China tech cold war. So even if you weren't a tech company or you weren't American, you can still get caught up in these things because the Department of Commerce might start issuing sanctions or making it impossible for people to do business. And you're suddenly a small company in Belgium having to having to take a side based on these two giants. So it just it's it all depends so much on your positionality. Who are you in the world? Who are you accountable to? Like, who are your stakeholders? That concept of stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder capitalism and the model of it has, I think, changed a bit. But it's also like the political risk factor of people say they don't want to do politics. Famously, and tech companies for ages have said, we're not political. We just want to scale. We want to serve as many people as possible. But it's that whole thing of you might not want to do politics or ethics, but they're going to do you. <laughs> if you don't have, if you haven't thought through your position on that, you're going to get caught out in the moment. It might be better to do that thinking in a calmer time. I love it. It reminds me of the comedy Silicon Valley, where all these tech companies stand up on stage and say, we want to make the world a better place. Without considering ethics, how do you get from A to B to F? I love it. And I love the book. And the way I'm describing it to friends, if word of mouth counts for anything, is just like, where do you draw the line? Which immediately makes me think, should you draw a line? Which makes me think, if you should, who should draw the line, you or the state? And it's philosophical, but what I, the word I love about this book is the word framework. Now, 
data science is definitely a hype word at the moment. There's 8,000 books on Amazon with the word big data in its title, 8,000. But when I look at data science in companies, the biggest challenge is where do you house it? Do you have the data science department in the basement and occasionally listen to what they have to say, or do you integrate it within the firm so it's influencing every decision? So we'll get to the ethics part of this conversation in this podcast, but I want to do it in reverse and ask, where do you think ethics should function within the firm? Who should it be reporting to? Who should it have underneath itself? I'd love to hear from an organizational perspective where you believe if they're going to take your framework seriously, where should this framework be housed? So I, can, I would answer that in two ways, which is going to be top-down first and then bottom-up. Top-down is that it's a CEO, C-suite, so the, the leadership and board issue. Mm-hmm. Because that, to quote Harry S. Truman, the book stops here. It's Apple CEO Tim Cook, who is making the decision about what's happening with Apple in Russia. And yes, he's chatting with different people about it, but like his name is what's on the statements. It's his face. He's going to be held accountable when the media has questions or when shareholders have questions or employees have questions. Mm. So ultimately, it's your CEO supported by the C-suite and board, all of whom have to know. I think it's, it's the why do you exist why are you here? What are you contributing to the world? And like, what's the cost of that? All of that, that 360 degree ethical assessment of yourself or even a metaphysical assessment of yourself, the reality of you. Why do you exist? How do we know? All of those things. But then there's also going to be, and I hinted this at the book at the end with the suggestion of, do we need a Hippocratic oath for tech? This is something Mm. that you can't just be like, oh, it's a C-suite issue, or we've got somebody in compliance, we've got a lawyer who does that, so the rest of us are kind of off the hook and can, it's not my job description. It's like, no, it's in everybody's job description. And it's, I once worked in a company where I was working with someone brilliant in cybersecurity, and he said the culture of health and safety on oil rigs was really interesting and relevant for cybersecurity, wow. and I was intrigued. And he said, the idea is that when you are on a rig, Every single person there has a health and safety responsibility. So if they see something that could cause an issue because everybody's lives are just de facto at risk on an oil rig at any time, it's not a question of hierarchy of like, oh, that's my boss's job or that's this person with this title's job. or I'm only three weeks here. I Maybe I don't know. You call it out. So I think there's that as well. The, the lowliest <laughs> intern or new joiner Uh, or newest person there might actually be the person who spots a risk. Oftentimes when you're new, you see things that other people have just become inured to. Anyhow, so it's, I think it's holistic. It's 360. It could be from the top and it has to be from the top, but there's also an argument that it's bottom up and all around. So a sign of success of the book could be if in two or three years time, we look at some large tech companies and ethics as part of their induction program. You know, I made economics part of the induction program at Spotify. If you could install ethics, as soon as you join this company, this is ground into you, that would be a sign of success. I would die happy if that change were to happen. Like, quite honestly, that never occurred in any company that I worked in, which I now find shocking. It would be amazing. That would be a a complete win. That's a sign of the times. But let me, I'm going to push back a little bit on some of this because we're so far away from this ethical stance from companies being more than, in some cases, window dressing or risk management. So I'm on record as saying many years ago now that if the CIA and NSA were really clever, they would have invented Facebook and Google because long before Shoshana Zuboff wrote her book, I was talking about them putting 2 billion people under surveillance every day. And 
certainly in terms of the United States position in the world, it behooves them greatly to have these assets, these projections of soft power that put so many billions of people under surveillance that they can tap into. Indeed, they're the most successful export industries that have ever been created in the history of man. They're the most profitable companies. And I'd say right now they've risen to the stage of being almost nation states. So how do you square the ethics of the society, of the polity at large, which kind of wants these Facebooks and Googles to do the job that the CIA and NSA are, are tasked to do in terms of keeping tabs on people? And with the fact that what some of these companies do can be highly intrusive and in many people's view, certainly looking at the controversies over Instagram and, and how it affects people's behavior and mental health, really have quite detrimental consequences and be quite unethical. Mm. How do you square those, the political dimension of what we want these companies to do and the individual dimension of what we are really disturbed by them doing? Mm. What a meaty question. I will try to answer that. So I guess on the one hand, there's like, why do social media companies exist? Are they there to be proxies for <laughs> intelligence services? Or are they there because they have figured out how to weaponize narcissism and our social animal existence? So that I would be appalled if you stationed a CIA officer in my flat. But apparently I'm fine tweeting out a picture of my holiday or my lunch, for example. Why is that? Even though I know it can be tagged and traced and mapped out and We'll know all the other people who liked my picture of my lunch and therefore we can make guesses about that over time. Fine. And why am I participating in social media at all, even though I know? I mean, I've done the research, I've read the books, I'm totally aware of it, and yet I still tweet and use LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. I don't use Facebook um, and Instagram. So that's interesting as well. It's like somebody said with like con artists, like the reason a con works a lot of the time, not always, but a lot of times you're being conned, you participate in the con. And I think about that a lot where I'm like, oh my God, we've all been told, like Shoshana Zuboff wrote her wonderful book and the media's done a great job and we've had congressional hearings. <laughs> we all know if we are choosing to be on Facebook or on Instagram or Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever, we know. We know what we're doing. Uh, TikTok as well. And if we let our kids go on it, we also are aware that nobody's like a victim in this now. So that's, I think that actually becomes more interesting than if we had this conversation, say, in 2015 right before we knew a lot of that stuff. And it was genuinely shocking when a lot of those revelations came out for many people. But now, now what is our ethical stance to them? I think now it's more we've decided that we like them, clearly, right? Because, yes, some people deleted their Facebook or whatever, but like clearly lots of people haven't. We've decided for the most part that we like these companies and we can tell that by their profits and their market share. So what we're doing now, I think, is saying we want you we want to be able to share these pictures and have these connections. And what we want is end encryption. And what we want is for you to take a stand on protecting our kids. And we want you to not use facial recognition, Facebook, <laughs> speaking directly to Facebook on that one. And if they don't, then they get their feet held to the fire by all sorts of activists in the media. And eventually they may change a bit or not. And I think they often only change when people howl enough. So they've actually done a really good job in some ways of shifting the responsibility for what ethical calls to make onto all of us, right? And that's like a very clever thing that Silicon Valley has done, I think, in response to the, those Snowden revelations onwards, was to go, 
we're just a small group of people in a small part of the United States, and we don't think that we should be making those decisions. Society should wow. be making those decisions. So they put it, it's like past right. the hot potato, only it's an ethics potato. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mark Zuckerberg said, whoa, to the government, we need you to tell us what the regulation right. is going to be. And thus far, government has proved completely incapable of drawing up any regulations. And and that's really no different than many other sectors. If we've had many other Bubble Trouble podcasts about regulatory capture theory and the fact that the industries that are seeking to be regulated are mostly writing the regulations themselves. But I want to sort of step back. This notion of technology is not neutral because, again, when I was a graduate student many years ago, there was a lot of debate about autonomous technology. And the, the great example that was put out then was nuclear power. Now, obviously, you can take uranium and turn it into weapons of mass destruction, which are terrible. And you can also use it potentially as a source of tremendously effective renewable energy. So that was the classic example of technology being autonomous. It's how it's used. And isn't the ethical element of it really about power and who holds power and ultimately who gets to exercise that power with, again, the work of Shoshana Zuboff and others being the idea that these large tech platforms can exercise their power by nudging you towards certain outcomes or towards certain commercial ends for themselves or exercise their power by creating really addictive technology, as uh, Tristan Harris would say, aiming a supercomputer at your brain. And we're really all simply unable to resist the power of the latest dopamine hit that's served up by Instagram or YouTube or any of the other uh, algorithmic platforms. Is this ultimately a question of whether ethics matter to those in power. Yeah, so I see a really clear connection and relationship between ethics and power. And that's why in the book, I wanted to sort of put myself in a position of sympathy as though I were sort of sitting next to the reader going, have you studied philosophy? Because if you haven't, there's other branches. <laughs> it's not just <laughs> ethics. And if you know them, and like there are countries, I've, I have a lot of French people in my life and I'm jealous of them for many reasons. And one of them, <laughs> the biggest ones, is not just their food and fashion, but they study philosophy really hardcore in high school. It's like part of their culture. It's, it's part of being French. And to get into university, it doesn't matter what degree you're studying, you have to pass these philosophy exams. Wow. And they just seem to have this like this faculty because, and I, I describe it in the book as like a Swiss army knife. It's like philosophy is like a Swiss army knife. And when you unfold it, it's got these six component tools, which are the six main branches of philosophy, of which ethics is just one. So if you want to talk about technology ethics, it behooves you to at least be aware of the other five, if not to draw on them actively as you get more adept so that you can understand how power, these very important questions of power relate to ethics. Because otherwise, ethics could feel like your, your Socrates and the Agora in your toga. <laughs> Be like, what is a good life? What is technology? What is good technology? And I wanted to make it super practical um, and applied. And so you're right, the, the connection mm. between power, who holds it, who doesn't have it. So when we design a tool, who is using the tool and on whom is the tool being used? What choice do they have? So we talk again about consent when you click on cookies. It's not really consent. You have to click on it or you don't get access to the product or service you want. Can kids meaningfully consent to anything? Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> like I remember being a kid, say in the world. So particularly when you're online, yeah. please spare me. These companies know that, right? So then they'll put it on the parents like, oh, but yeah, so we're going to tell the parents they have to police their children the whole time online. So it's, it gets really, it's messy, but that's why I wanted to, to embed ethics 
into that wider discussion of philosophy as a whole so that people could start to practice and, and play with it. And why each branch, I give like a little description of each branch and then I'm like how it applies to technology to give like real world examples so that if you needed to like win a debate with somebody <laughs> at work, that. you could at least have something to cite on yeah. or then riff off of it for yourself. That point you make there gives me goosebumps because what I've always felt is that the enemy of academia is echo chambers. Like, why should economics have a monopoly on alleviating poverty, as was the case for many years, decades, centuries? There's so many other disciplines could, could contribute to that topic. And what you're trying to do is throw it wide open. And to your point about philosophy, whenever I'm back home in Edinburgh, I just stare at that statue for David Hume and just, he taught the world how to think and how we think. He went right back to the basics. And I always like to say an economist who hasn't studied philosophy is like playing golf with one hand. It's a real disadvantage. You just can't yeah. question your reasoning. So... That's really important. This feels like a two-part of podcast already. I want to thank you for part one. And my big takeaway there is the term tolerated trespass. You went from Snowden to the present and how we have a kind of tolerated trespass in the use and abuse of ethics. Who's tolerating and who says it's a trespass? We'll come back to part two, where the doer pessimistic Scottish economist wants to ask a question of the cost of all of this as well. But we'll be back in a moment. Will here with a special request for you, our valued Bubble Trouble listener. First off, thank you for listening. Every time we put out an episode, we are so excited to see you enjoying them. Now we'd like to ask you to help grow the show. We'd like to ask you to tell just one person about Bubble Trouble who you think would enjoy the show. Perhaps you write a tweet or send a text or an email or post about it this episode. It doesn't matter, it just all helps. Just tell one person and your work is done. Myself and Richard, we would be so grateful. Thank you. Welcome back to part two of this episode of Bubble Trouble. We're here with Stephanie Hare talking about her book, Technology is Not Neutral. And I'm going to allow Will to step in with the first question. Will? So ethics is an attractive lunchtime topic, and there's no such thing as a free lunch. And what the doer of pessimistic Scottish economist has to do is ask, Who's going to pay for this Essex? It's going to come at a cost. And a recent spat involving Spotify, my former employer, Joe Rogan, and the artist Neil Young kind of brought the ethics debate to life. Podcasts. You know, is this podcast creating liability for the platforms that are producing them? Discuss. So in a quote in The Economist, I gave this following observation. Software firms' valuations have long been driven by the notion that there's no marginal cost. Content moderation might be there first. And I want to get into this because I'm going to give you an example of an anonymous tech company which is involved in streaming, content, user-generated content. They have 4,000 employees. 4,000 employees. You can imagine tech company's typical structure. Have a guess how many of those 4,000 employees work in content moderation. 10%. 897. So pretty much one in four employees produce no value to this tech company. They're just dealing with a deadweight cost of moderation. And this for me is fascinating. I'll build this out even further and I'm going to toss you the microphone and just riff on this one. But when Facebook disclosed how many people they employed in content moderation, interestingly, the stock price fell. I think that could be our next book for you is why did the stock price fall when you showed that you took content moderation seriously? So there's got to be a cost to this. I think it's quite a significant cost, and it could even be tech's first ever marginal cost, which creates all sorts of hangovers for those utopian dreams. So talk to me about who's going to pay for ethics. I guess 
As you were saying that, I found myself, my brain sort of splitting into two. And I was running with what you were saying of the, what's the cost of ethics and who pays for it. And then I was opening up a second window of what's the cost of not doing ethics. Nice. The counterfactual. And who pays for that. Right, so sort of, it's a constant because it's it's always a choice, right? Right, it's so it's not what did you achieve; it's what did you prevent? Yeah, count the zeros, not the ones. Just bear with me because I'm going to attempt to make an analogy. <laughs> <laughs> but being growing up in the United States and then moving outside of the United States, I was always very aware of the cost of the U.S. defense budget and mm-hmm. having troops around the world and America being the world's policeman, whether or not that was something that the United States chose or felt it had to do. Discuss. And then living here in Europe, there was always this question of, you know, did we need to have as many troops that we had stationed in Germany or whatever? And a lot of that was a hangover from the Second World War. And I trained as an historian. And so when I was debating this with very nerdy friends many years ago, they all thought that we should pull the U.S. troops out because there was peace. The end of history had occurred. And Germany was reunited and the USSR had collapsed and everything was fine and we were trading and everyone was just making money. And... My view, I guess, was probably more the historian view of the United States has twice had to come over to this continent to sort things out. And I also remember in high school in the 90s, watching the breakup of Yugoslavia and like terrible mass graves and crimes that everybody seems to have forgotten about. But I watched that. It was a really um, formative moment for me. So learning about the importance of U.S. troops in Europe, not just for peacekeeping in Europe, but as a base in the Sahel or on, a, on the way to... Iraq or Afghanistan later after 9-11, you start to realize that like there's a cost to having U.S. troops in Europe and there's a cost to not having them. And we're seeing that right now, hmm. today, right? And the cost of NATO versus not having NATO or there are certain countries that haven't been making their NATO contributions as much as they could be. And we've seen a couple of changes on that just in the past two weeks. Like Germany has made a totally radical, radical. decision to increase dis- defense spending. So Reversing what is the cost decades of Germany of history. not investing in defense versus what it's the cost if it does, right? They're getting like a real live example of that. So taking that analogy back to tech and ethics within companies, I think we have to ask ourselves, you can, the reason Facebook's stock price is going to fall when you announce how many people are working on content moderation is because you can quantify that and you can look at it and go, oh, it's quantifiable. Does the market even have a way of quantifying Facebook's ethical screw-ups? Now, that might be when it got fined quite recently a few years ago, and then its stock price went up you know, by the FTC, and it was like the biggest fine that had been issued, and it didn't matter. So another part of me is a little bit like, I don't really know if we want the market being the supreme arbiter of truth or what we of ethical guidance i mean the market's decoupled from all sorts of realities or things that we might not like mm-hmm. so that you know there's there's that as well not to offend any anyone who's an investor or a trader but they have different priorities than ethics so, right? so, so ethics just, might be part of it but just come back on that point there about what's the counterfactual of not paying for the cost of ethics as it were there's something in my book which i think resonates with your remarks so nicely i give the example of two people who work in a pr and comms team in a firm and one person's job is to get good news out the gate quarterly earnings are great so give me good headlines another person is to prevent bad news from happening and how do you appraise them 
with KPIs and metrics. Well, the metrics of good news is really easy. Like I got this number of headlines this quarter, Wall Street Journal, FT, page one, give me my promotion, give me my bonus, give me my headcount. The person who spends all day preventing bad news, preventing the proverbial SHIT from hitting the fan, has nothing to show for it. And just going back to the organizational psychology of how does this framework go into action, that raises questions, doesn't it? Like, I prevented all these bad things from happening by paying for ethics. Show me what, did, show me what didn't happen. It's, it's going to get tricky to persuade if it has to go up to the CEO to really embed this in companies. It just strikes me just listening to you. Like, it's going to be like pushing water uphill in the early stages, I'm sure. It reminds me a little bit of the, the long-held lament of the chief information security officers of any company who are like, you know, us doing well is that we haven't had a data breach, yeah. accidental or hostile. We haven't had a cybersecurity event and our success is measured by what did not happen rather yeah. than what did. And that's, again, like those pictures. I think I even used this analogy in the book. I was quoting Taiwan's digital minister, Audrey Tang. Mm-hmm. She uses a, a Taoist quote about the value she and it's a it's like the analogies of a pot so if you imagine a clay pot the clay creates a space inside that you could fill the pot with dirt with water with a water and goldfish if you wanted it but whatever you want put in your pot m&ms and so she says the value of the pot is where the pot's not which Mm -hmm. i know sounds trippy but it's (laughs) i just i I think very visually so i was like but Bye. I, I, I always think it make, you're making me think of the Joseph Conrad novella Typhoon. I don't know if you've read that one, but just a famous story of McWhir, sort of sea hardy captain who's told his trouble ahead and take the long route around the Pacific to get to his destination to avoid the typhoon. He says, I can't do that. I said, why? Because when I get to the destination, I'll have to fill out a logbook and explain why I was late. And you avoid a typhoon. But my boss will say to me, how bad was it? So I don't know. I avoided it. And that's where the problem starts. Like this factoring in mm. and calculating the value of the counterfactual is deep. It's really deep. Well, but there's a way of doing it. So luckily, we all share this planet with eight billion other people and different organizations and countries, which allows us to see we might have the really good cybersecurity practice so we don't have a data breach or get hacked. But unfortunately, our friend over there who didn't invest or who didn't prioritize us, didn't, and we can quantify what happens when not patching hits them, mm. right? <laughs> or these people didn't look at their supply chain and boom, they had a major issue when it was discovered that mm-hmm. children were involved or slave labor or whatever, and you can quantify the fallout from that. So there's, there are ways, I think, to do it. It's more, it requires work. <laughs> people are lazy, we're all exhausted, we have been retired but i th- i mean that would be the fun challenge of this is like absolutely let's find a way to quantify it how do you make ethics easy how do you demonstrate the value and it isn't just you know what didn't happen it's also are you attracting and retaining the best people are you actually making products and services that are new or that people want in a way that's great mm-hmm. um lots of people are wanting to invest in things that make them feel good about the, their role in solving some of these problems. You're checking your pension is like a green-oriented pension. <laughs> so, you know, that stuff has started or changing diets so that we are eating better in a way that's better for the planet. I think there's ways of doing it. That's the question is how. 
So uh, before we move on to the last section of, of this, our podcast that we always ask our guests to, to reflect on, I want to ask you about one of the big examples in your book. And that is you cover facial recognition, but you also cover the development of these contact tracing apps in the wake of the pandemic. And I guess the big picture question is, why are governments so bad at developing technology? Because in this case, you spent 22 billion pounds in the UK, which is effectively equivalent to an entire year's capital expenditure budget for Google, building a global business of over 200 and close to $250 billion. You spent that much money in the UK, dumped into a bunch of consultancies, run by a woman who has no technical competence whatsoever. And it was a disaster. So what is it about power and values that we're seeing, for example, right now in the UK government that led them to do such a dreadful job, and I don't think that's a controversial statement in the slightest, at managing technology through this pandemic, or pingdemic as it was for many people for a very long period of time. Yeah, so on the one hand, the United Kingdom's experience with digital health tools during the pandemic was a shit show. On the other hand, <laughs> what we learned from that, and it's an expensive lesson, and what we're left with is quite interesting. So I have here on my little phone, the NHS app, That's which when I took my phone home, I was back in the US for the holidays for Christmas. I hadn't seen my family in two years. And so I was giving them all a little like demo of how the app works. And they thought it was fantastic, which actually made me kind of look at it again, because I had been really critical and while writing the book. And then I thought, actually, there's something quite interesting here. This app if you have a smartphone, so you're not part of the digitally excluded, you're someone who has a smartphone, you can access this app and maybe you're younger and you want to do all your stuff on, on apps, which a lot of my younger friends do here. It's fantastic. You can check your medication records. You can book appointments. You've got your um, COVID vaccine passport that you can use to travel internationally and you can upload it to your iPhone wallet if you want. And I believe it works for Google Android as well. So hurrah, that is cool. I mean, there's definitely a, a benefit to mm. that because mm. I had to get vaccinated in the U.S. and I was given that little, like, cardboard piece of paper from the CDC. Yeah. <laughs> like somebody wrote in handwriting. I don't know if that ever gets entered into a database. I, it doesn't talk with my U.K. vaccine rec records. It's a mess. Yeah. So on the one hand, the U.K. was trying. Yes, the minister in question, our health secretary, Matt Hancock, has a, a sketchy data protection track record in his own app. And yes, he hired... Uh, appointed rather Dido Harding, whose cybersecurity track record was not ideal, I think we can all say, for this task. That said, it's easy to say it now when we're here two years in, we've all been vaccinated and boosted, and I mean, it's pretty much back to normal. We have to remember what it was like in March 2020, and I do, I have that sort of viscerally burned into my brain forever. It was terrifying. We didn't know if we were ever going to have a vaccine, right? We didn't know what we were going to be able to do. And I think that was a great moment to live through as a researcher to go, I'm watching a country literally throw the kitchen sink at this problem. How do you do crisis response, particularly international crisis response like a pandemic did, in a way that is fiscally responsible, where you're able to do value for money? That's part of why I wrote the chapter and why I have a really beautiful data viz right at the end where I track all the mitigations that we tried here in the UK, particularly in England, which is where most of us live, both population-wise and geography-wise. And I don't offend the other three nations. I just, mm -hmm. I wanted to focus on England because I was living it. I looked at all the digital tools we did, but also the analog tools, and I, I mapped them 
along with the data curves of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. Because what I wanted was to be able to demonstrate not a causal relationship, that's much harder, but certainly a correlation mm -hmm. between what we were doing and what was happening to the actual rate of transmission and, and the hardcore effects that we all need to know about, which is hospitalizations and death. And my takeaway from it is we probably could have parked all of the digital initiatives. Wow. It yeah. would have been much better for us to have used that money to support people to stay home and isolate when they got a test result that was positive or they were exposed to someone. Absolutely. But that's a cultural issue here in the UK. The Tory government doesn't like to give people money the best of, unless it's their own friends, of course. Uh, but they didn't, they didn't want to do that. So. Well, that, that is precisely what they did. They gave £22 billion via Dido Harding to a bunch of consultants that ended up coming up with something that could have been written by a couple of co-op students in a computer science university program and ended up being industrialized quite well, but by the good folks at the NHS who, like the people who's run gov.uk, actually kind of know what they're doing. They're just not the PwC type consultants that, that are used to draining the government coffers. Let's move on from this because we can get very exercised about it. And I just like to use the, I liked, I like to use the analogy that the UK spent as much money as Google did running a global business of $250 billion and processing a trillion queries a day for search in one specific contract tracing app. Yeah. That our, our, was a our, failure. Our listeners can't see it, but there is steam coming out of Richard and Stephanie's ears yeah, right now. Yeah. So what <laughs> we what, what, stoic, right? Yeah. Now. What we try to do, what we try to do at the end, is uh, do a bit of smoking. And in that sense, we ask our our guests to give us a couple smoke signals. And from a technology and ethics point of view, what are the couple weasel words or phrases you hear? The kind of things that you go, uh oh, that's not going to end well. That help show technology companies, large and small, behaving, or nation states, large and small, behaving in a way where they show that technology and ethics for them are not bedfellows. I think the constant emphasis on guidelines, principles, definitions, you could waste, oh, not waste, you could spend, and people do spend a lot of time, and that never gets translated into action. So anything that can't be measured and benchmarked or in some way held up for scrutiny always makes me a bit nervous. If it involves the marketing department in any way, I'm nervous. No offense to marketing department people. I just, because I get worried that it's a PR communications branding exercise. Whereas what I want to see is like, how are you training your data scientists? Yeah. How are you training your developers? How are you training your board? Again, the money people, Interesting. <laughs> the operational people, the product owners and managers, like, where does this sit in your organization? So if it's just committees and guidelines and principles, I feel like that was like a few years ago in that phase. And if they're still in that phase, if they haven't moved on to show how they can, how are you living it? How are you walking your walk? That that kind of makes me nervous. And with your permission, I'll ask our producer to get the Bill Hicks sketch, the famous one, which was if anybody here works in marketing and advertising, kill yourself. <laughs> but you just... I feel really bad. There's, there's ethics there, but yeah, he comes at it the exact same way. How can I make money out of ethics? Ethics, that's a good dollar. <laughs> we can sell that dollar. Yeah, it goes down the, it goes down the wrong cul-de-sac if it ends up in the marketing department. Agreed. Is there another smoke signal that you can point to that you hear politicians when they're talking about how important it is to get their hands around regulating technology or you hear 
uh, civil society groups talk about the evils of technology and you go, look, this is just not going anywhere. Well, weirdly, it's when they actually use the word ethics or ethically <laughs> because they just apply it as a an adjective to what they're doing without, I'm like, oh, sorry, how do you, what do you mean by that? Show, like, I want to see the receipts. I want to see the accounts. <laughs> I want to know uh, how this works. So I think, like, weirdly, again, the word ethics makes me, it's not that it's bad. It's just that it sets my antenna up and I'm like, okay, there's whitewashing, there's ethics washing, there's greenwashing, and there's sports washing. There's just so much washing going on that I think, yeah, any, just anytime I see it, if somebody's claiming how ethical they are, I'm like, that's interesting. Tell me more. <laughs> you have my attention. <laughs> Myself included, by the way. <laughs> it's, it's very easy, isn't it? And that's kind of why I played in the book with somebody's a little devil on the front cover and an angel on the back, because we all have that in us. I want to thank Stephanie here for her time, uh, her voice, and the book. I think the book's going to be a huge success. I mean, I've just a couple of observations to wrap up. I always like to talk about the difference between the and ah. When Simon Sharma, around the time of the millennium, produced A History of Britain, and it made history popular, like I hope your book makes ethics popular, he always said it's our history. I'm not claiming it's the history of Britain. You can write a history of Britain too. This is just our history, and you offer our framework. You don't push it out there as this is the framework, but really accessible, and I think it's the moment, it's the hour. I really hope this one flies. I really hope this one gets into the induction programs of tech. And secondly, just a little footnote to your achievements here. I just want to say that my own book was influenced by a fantastic woman, a longtime mentor of mine called Diana Coyle. Ironically, on a plane when I flew to Chicago, I boarded a plane and realized I was sitting next to Diana Coyle. I text my mum to say, I'm going to be a whole lot more intelligent when I get off this plane than when I got on it. By the time the plane landed in Chicago, she had convinced me to start working my book. So, again, I'm just really pleased to see that her fingerprints are over your work as well. But, Stephanie, thank you yes. so much for coming on the podcast. And to stress to every HR department, shove this book into your induction program and make sure the next batch of engineers and data science you hire are reading it from cover to cover. Thank you so much. And give it to your CEO. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Will Page and I will see you next time. Bubble Trouble.